Good morning, everyone. It's uh, time to get started, so we will plunge in here. Um, I know that some of these areas of discussion are probably not the most uh, exciting since we're talking about other uh, denominations and other uh, theological perspectives, but um, hopefully in the long run it will be helpful and beneficial to you. But let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together, and then we will start on today's lesson. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for a new day. We thank you for the sunshine, and we um, are grateful that you have uh, given us life and health, and you've brought us to this place. We're thankful that you've given us a day of worship, and we pray that this might be a profitable day, and that we might indeed uh, be found worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Help us, Lord, as we look into um, these different matters that pertain to the truth of your word as opposed to um, other teachings, and as we see how you have worked at times in the past and ways that really um, have benefited us and in our present day, we pray that you would bless our time and that um, you would help both speaker and hearer that we may have your spirit in empowering and helping us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, just as a quick uh, review of where, uh, what we're doing here, uh, Pastor Mark had set up a series entitled Theological Paradigms, and uh, there are three major categories, the practice, the process, and the, and the paradigms. Oh, actually, a series called Introduction to Theology, and the, um, the three areas were practice, process, and uh, paradigms. And the other two uh, first P's on that list have already been covered, and as you know, I'm covering the Theological Paradigms section and uh, I have uh, defined theological paradigm in this way. It's a set of ideas or beliefs that comprise one's theological perspective, faith, and system. It includes the beliefs that make up a theological viewpoint and that distinguish one theological viewpoint from another. And we are on Lesson 12 today, and uh, we are talking about the non-Baptistic traditions so we're going to talk about Presbyterian theology, Lutheran theology, and Anglican theology. And then next week we will talk about the non-reformed traditions. So <clears throat> with regard to uh, Presbyterian theology, there are roughly 75 million Presbyterians in the world. And uh, as many of you may know, uh, I went to a Presbyterian seminary and graduated from there, and so I have a great respect for my Presbyterian brothers. I don't agree with them in some areas, as you will see, but uh, they're, some of my favorite theologians uh, are Presbyterians, such as John Murray or Cornelius Van Til, uh, Jay Gresham Machen, um, Richard Gaffin, John Frame, B.B. Warfield. Many of these men you are probably familiar with and probably yourself benefit from. And so, as I may differ from them in certain ways. I don't want you to uh, get the idea that I don't have a really high regard and respect for many of the Presbyterian brethren, and I have benefited immensely from many of their theological insights. But um, as always, 
Uh, the scriptures are our final rule in faith and practice. And so I may not always agree with what they have taught because I don't see it in the scriptures. But I just want to kind of give out that disclaimer, that qualifier that, that uh, as you see me dif- disagreeing with some of them, it doesn't mean that I don't have a high regard for them and regard many of them as uh, precious and dear brothers. Well, with regard to the historical background and roots of Presbyterianism, <clears throat> Presbyterianism originated in Scotland. Does anybody know who is considered the founder of Presbyterianism by any chance? John Knox, yes. Um, it's one of the major church traditions or denominations that rose out of the Protestant denominations and it's a, a, a Reformation and it's part of the Reformed tradition. And John Knox is considered the founder. <clears throat> he was an ordained priest, and uh, we can't go into a, a lot of his life, which we, we could, but he spent five years in England after rowing in the galleries for nine, galley, uh, gallows for 19 uh, months. And uh, he worked with Thomas Cranmer, we'll talk about him later, in the creation of what is called the 42 Articles. At that time, it was called the 42 Articles, and it later became the 39 Articles, which became the doctrinal statement of the Church of England. <clears throat> but he worked with uh, Thomas Cranmer on that, which was Calvinistic. He went into Geneva, and he met John Calvin and spent time there uh, with, with uh, Calvin in Geneva, and he ended up adopting Calvin's theology. He returned then to Scotland, and he fervently preached the Reformation doctrines. He returned after a short time then to Geneva, and um, he had a great influence there in Scotland, but the uh, Mary, Queen of Scotland, was a Catholic, and she didn't like his influence, and so um, he left just before she sentenced him to death and, in fact, burned him in effigy. But the Reformation continued there in Scotland under his preaching and the, uh, his influence and the influence of others after he left. And after a time, uh, the, those who were the leaders there realized they needed even uh, a stronger leader. And so they asked Knox to return, which he did. And uh, he was a very fiery and dynamic preacher. His preaching and influence then became so powerful that in 1560, the Scottish, the Scottish Parliament decreed a change in religion from Catholicism to, to Protestantism. So it was, uh, there was, uh, the state was involved in this. By state, I mean the government. And, um, <clears throat> and so they made this significant change. They changed their official religion from Catholicism to Protestantism. <clears throat> now, let's look at the Church of Scotland under Knox's influence real quickly. Under his influence, a Calvinistic confession of faith, which was largely John Knox's work, was adopted. The Pope's authority was abolished. The Mass was forbidden. And then in 1560, the Scottish General Assembly of the Church presented to Parliament what was called the First Book of Discipline. And this this was uh, something that was then applied by Knox to all of the churches in the the, uh, system there, in in their system of government. And it applied the, the system of church government 
that Calvin had worked out for the one church in Geneva, but it was applied by Knox to all the churches there in Scotland. And it include, included these four elements. It included the, a, the element of a session, and we'll define what these are a little bit later, but this is part of the church government, the element of a, uh, of a session, a presbytery, a synod, and then a general assembly. And this structure then, which was patterned after Calvin's Geneva, became the pattern for Presbyterianism. Now, as the Presbyterian Church was established in Scotland, uh, the Roman Catholic Church continued to lose ground there. And at the time of, uh, even though Mary, uh, there was still, the, the, the uh, Queen was still Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism still was losing ground. So at the time of Knox's death in 1572, the Presbyterian Church was firmly established. Now, beyond that, how the Presbyterian Church developed is a pretty complex uh, history, and we don't have time to go into that. But I just wanted to have a taste for the founding of uh, Presbyterianism as it started there in Scotland. But there are many branches of Presbyterian that developed out of the Presbyterian Church after that particular time. We'll look at those in a very broad way later. Doctrinal standards, what a Presbyterians believe. Now, I'm just going to be selecting certain branches based, um, what, certain branches of the Presbyterian denomination based on the size and the significance, what I regard the significance of the particular church, because there are many different Presbyterian denominations. So we'll just look at a few. So there is the, the PCI, the Presbyterian Church in India. And they hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. This particular church is the largest Presbyterian church denomination in the world. You might be surprised to know that. It's in India. And they hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't know a whole lot about the PCI. Then there is the PCUSA. In the United States, the Presbyterian Church uh, in the United States is the largest United States branch or denomination, Presbyterian denomination. And what they hold to is a list of 10 different confessions. We don't need to look, look, at, them all. They look at them all. They actually do hold to, according to them, the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, which would be very orthodox and sound, except for maybe, in my opinion, a couple of areas. And they hold to other uh, solid doctrinal statements, but they have, as we will see, departed from that as they have branched out and embraced other um, less orthodox statements. The Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, <clears throat> holds to the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechisms as, as well and would be one of the most um, conservative um, groups here in the United States or branches in the United States. And then there's the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, <clears throat> which was um, pretty much founded by J. Gresham Machen, who is also the founder of Westminster Seminary, where I went. But uh, they hold to the Westminster standards as well. So that just gives you an idea as to where they are theologically. <clears throat> and I don't have, obviously, time to go into all, all that's involved in the Westminster Confession. Uh, there's like 31, 33 chapters, something like that. So uh, we don't have time to go into all that. <clears throat> but... 
just um, looking a little bit more at some of the what I will call the distinguishing doctrines of, uh, of Presbyterians as opposed to, say, who, who we are as Reformed Baptists. They have a, um, a view of church government that we don't uh, adhere to. They have a particular structure or hierarchy, which we've already mentioned, that was developed by um, Knox uh, under Calvin's influence there in Scotland. <coughs> and, they begin, and they have at the lowest level what is called a session. This includes the, the minister, the, the, quote, pastor of the church, plus the elder elders uh, in the church, and those elders under Presbyterian um, uh, polity are chosen by the congregation. They're voted on by the congregation. But the session um, is the minister plus elders chosen by the congregation of a particular local church. And then they have what is called a presbytery, <clears throat> where they get their name. Um, and this is a body of delegated ministers and elders who represent all the local churches in a particular district. So they have churches in districts, and then they have from each church a body of delegated ministers and, and um, elders. And this body is a, an administrative court in their um, government. And then above that, they have a, a larger group, the Synod. The Synod is a body of delegated ministers and elders uh, representing a larger group of local churches in a particular district. And it's an ecclesiastical court. It is above the uh, presbyteries, and it is subject to the, um, the last level here in the hierarchy, which is the General Assembly. The General Assembly, then, is the body of delegated ministers and elders that represent all the local churches of the denomination, and it's the highest ecclesiastical court. So that's a, a little bit of, of understanding what uh, distinguishes Presbyterians, uh, at least from us, is their church government. Now, let me just give you a very quick analysis of, of um, church government from my perspective, I think from our perspective as a Reformed Baptist church, Baptist church. <clears throat> and that is, <clears throat> first of all, I don't see this structure laid out in Scripture. I don't see the Scripture laying out for us, you know, in a session, um, presbytery, synod, general assembly. Um, that I, I don't, um, we don't see that as being something that is laid out and required by Scripture. In addition to that, the Presbyterian church government is, is generally deduced by looking primarily at different passages in Acts. There's some outside of Acts as well, but <clears throat> um, the, the book of Acts is, is uh, appealed to um, largely. But at my perspective, the examples and acts are capable of a different interpretation that does not support such a formal structure as we see in the Presbyterian denomination. And we, if we had time, we could go into some of those passages, but that'd take us the rest of the time here. <clears throat> but just know that, um, at least from our perspective as Baptists, we think that those, um, those examples in the book of Acts and other places are, have... Uh, a different interpretation, and they don't combine together to support uh, the structure of Presbyterian churches. Um, the leadership of the Twelve Apostles, which is one of the key elements in the meetings that we find in the book of Acts, was for a unique period in the founding of the church. 
men today do not have the same jurisdiction or ecclesiastical authority as the apostles, and therefore um, we uh, we don't believe that what is set forth by the Presbyterians um, is sufficient grounds for establishing their church polity. And after the church was founded, I mean the New Testament church in the early days, um, certain practices of the early church were no longer required or possible even since the apostles were no longer there. So just those are just some quick, my, my quick comments on, <clears throat> on uh, that other than going into the specific passages. Well, let's look then <clears throat> at some of the other distinguishing doctor, uh, doctrines of um, Presbyterians, what Presbyterians believe. The second area is the area of the sacraments, <clears throat> what is called the sacraments, which we would sometimes call the ordinances. <clears throat> well, they hold to infant baptism. Obviously, we don't hold to infant baptism either, um, called pedobaptism. Now, how do they um, justify pedobaptism? <clears throat> well, they justify by talking about something called the covenant of grace. And they say that the covenant of grace extends from the fall of Adam to the end time, to um, all of eternity, ultimately, either to the end, end of this history or th- throughout eternity. And they say that the um, sign of circumcision is the sign of the covenant of grace. I'm going to, by the way, I just have to say that this is a very quick, simple explanation. Uh, there's a lot more to it that you could say than what I'm going to be saying, but I'm going to give you the kind of the guts of it, the um, and the traditional view of this. So circumcision is the sign of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, and it is applied to infant children of those who are in the covenant community in the Old Testament. So they established that to begin with, okay? Circumcision was applied to everyone who was in the nation of Israel, <clears throat> the, covenant of, uh, the um, covenant people. And so because uh, that was applied to infants under the Old Covenant, And because baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant of grace in the New Testament, and because scriptures never abolish applying the sign to infants in the New Testament, infants of those in the New Covenant community, that is in the New Testament church, believers, should have the sign applied to them too. So very simply, overarching covenant of grace under the Old Testament, in the Old Testament times, the sign was applied to infants. That was never abrogated. So under the New Testament, the sign, which is now baptism, is also to be applied to infants. So that's their justification for it in a nutshell. Maybe overly simplistic, but that's all we have time for. Now, <clears throat> also... Some Presbyterians hold to infant communion. Uh, it says pedo-baptism there, should say pedo-communion. Um, not all Presbyterians hold to this. In fact, I would say probably uh, maybe the majority of them don't. But um, there is a significant movement and group of, of uh, Presbyterians who do hold to this. And uh, I believe that even somebody I had as a professor at uh, Westminster would um, move in this direction of having infant communion. And basically the justification is pretty similar to the justification for infant baptism. 
Basically, they would say, by virtue of baptism, infants are in the covenant community. They're part of the external, the outward people of God. And uh, they are, by that, united to Christ. Therefore, they are entitled to receive all the blessings of the covenant community. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith on baptism, when it describes baptism, it says this, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him, and I think that's a very significant little comment or phrase there, is to be unto him, that is the one being baptized, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, notice what this baptism is supposed to signify even for infants, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. So <clears throat> that is uh, the Westminster's description and definition of infant baptism, which also then um, you can see from that means that the infants are in, uh, entered into the new covenant community. They're to be considered at this point um, part of God's people, and so the justification is, by virtue of their baptism, infants are in the covenant community, and they are part of the people of God, and they are united to Christ, therefore they are entitled to receive all the blessings of the covenant community, which includes communion. So, they are entitled to partake of the covenant meal. <clears throat> so this is the Presbyterian uh, justification for paedo-baptism and paedo-communion. Now, um, let me give you my quick analysis. I don't have time to go into this in a lot of detail, but uh, let me just say that there is a single doctrine that undergirds both infant baptism and infant communion, and that is the doctrine of the covenant of grace. Now, this doctrine is intended by theologians to emphasize that there is one gracious way and plan of salvation for all people of all ages since the fall, and hence the name, Covenant of Grace. <clears throat> it's a gracious covenant. And this emphasis, I firmly believe and hold to. Um, I don't have time, I think, at this point to go into my experience at Westminster regarding this particular doctrine. <clears throat> um, all, I will, all I will say is, is this. I'll just give you a little bit of a taste and then I'm going to have to move on. But um, when I was at Westminster <clears throat> in class, the, one of my professors in my Old Testament history and theology class asked one day, how would you support from Scripture the doctrine of the covenant of grace. And in a class of maybe 40 to 50 students who had been raised or weaned on the Westminster Confession or other Pado-Baptist confessions, um, do you know what they said? No, you don't, because you weren't there. So, um, <clears throat> I will just tell you, they said nothing. There was silence. So when he asked, uh, where do you go to, in Scripture to support the covenant of grace... Silence. <clears throat> now, I personally believe that there is a problem with the way that the covenant of grace has been formulated 
and um, do not hold to a particular, uh, to the traditional Westminster Confession view of the covenant of grace. I can explain that in more detail at some other time, and I know that not every Reformed Baptist even would agree with me on that. There are some Reformed Baptists that would agree that there is a covenant of grace, and so I'm not going to go into detail right now in, tell, in telling you why I think that, that um, why I don't particularly hold to that. But even if there is such a thing as a covenant of grace, <clears throat> let's say, even if we acknowledge that, even if we say it's okay to use that terminology, even though we recognize that it can't go to a particular passage of Scripture, we're going to go ahead and use that as a theological category, just make it distinct from other Old Testament uh, covenants. Even if we grant all of that, there's still problems with the uh, paedo-baptism, and let me just list some of them for you. Well, number one, the sign should be applied only to the members of the covenant, and since under the new covenant, the members are disciples, who are members of the church? They're disciples. <clears throat> Those who have repented and believed, infants are excluded from that because we don't know, you know that an infant has repented and believed until they are able to confess it and tell us that. <clears throat> Secondly, uh, under the Pedobaptist view of the covenant of grace, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not the sign of the covenant of grace. And so there's a slippering, sliding back and forth between Old Testament historical covenants and this ahistorical, non-historical, um, overarching covenant of grace. So even if you grant that there's a covenant of grace, you cannot just simply take the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and apply it to the covenant of grace, even though you regard it as an administration of that covenant. And if you were to do that, then you'd also have to do that with a Mosaic covenant and say then also the sign of the Mosaic covenant, which is the Sabbath, has to also be applied to the covenant of grace, which they don't do. So um, that would make there two signs of the covenant of grace, wouldn't it, if you did that? So I think that's another problem. And then, you know, there's some of the obvious questions that would come up. Why is the sign of baptism applied uh, to girls if the sign under the Old Testament is only applied to boys? You know, circumcision only given to boys, so why do we, how do we justify applying the sign of baptism to girls? Um, that might seem like kind of a, a minor little thing. You can just kind of poo-poo and shove it off. But, and I, and I, don't, I wouldn't build a, a big case on that, but it's still a question to ask, answer. And, um, and then the other thing is what I've already mentioned to you when I read to you the Westminster Confession of Faith's uh, definition of baptism. How can baptism be to the infant, even under the Westminster Confession of Faith's own definition of baptism, how can it be unto him, the one being baptized, the infant being baptized, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of, and, of his, his, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Is the infant consciously saying all that? No, obviously. And they would acknowledge, no, he's not saying that. And yet, I think there's a problem with their definition of baptism because they define it well if that applies to an adult or, you know, of age believer. 
So uh, their explanation would simply be, well, it's going to become that sign to him later. When he gets older. But they don't say that, actually, in the Westminster Confession. It says it's unto him. Although it doesn't really say when, so... That, that would be their argument. It doesn't say when, so we'll go with it later. But I think that that's a problem um, in their theology. <clears throat> um, so, with regard to um, communion, if there is no covenant of grace, then there, then there is no uh, initiation into the covenant community via infant baptism, and consequently no grounds for partaking of communion until a, a person does become a part of the covenant community, which would be when they are baptized um, as a, a disciple of Christ, a professing disciple of Christ. Um, and to me, one other comment, I'll get your question. And to me, it's very obvious when it, regards, when it comes to the idea of, covenant, uh, of uh, infant communion, it's pretty obvious to me that those infants are not able to do what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. When you're giving an infant the bread and the wine, are they doing that in remembrance? That's the whole point of the communion service, to do it in remembrance of what Christ has done. Dave. Okay, well, we'll get to, Roman, uh, to that a little bit when we talk about Lutheranism, but the distinction between Roman Catholic infant baptism and Presbyterian infant baptism is that um, for a Roman Catholic, <laughs> infant baptism is actually part of their justification, and justification for them is not a declared uh, one-time act. It is an ongoing process. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and if you talk to a, a Presbyterian, they would not all, not all of them would say, oh, yes, we know they're regenerate, but they would basically argue, but I don't know if you're regenerate either because I can't see your heart. So, um, yeah, the, it, it gets kind of complex at times, but um, anyway. All right, well, let's kind of move ahead here so we can try to get through this in, in time. Um, the Presbyterian Church today, there are many Presbyterian denominations. You can all see that really well, can't you? <laughs> okay, so I didn't really intend for you to see this, but what I wanted you to see at least is kind of this, uh, this structure which gives you a little bit of the history of Presbyterian <coughs> denominations so you can at least see that it's a little bit complex. And the ones that you see circled in red, those are what I would call the conservative ones today. And the one that you see in kind of an orange uh, color there, on the, on the, more on the right, that is the, the PCUSA, which is a little less conservative. And we're going to look at those, those particular um, Presbyterian den uh, denominations. The PCUSA, um, the PCA, the OPC, and the EPC. Okay. So what about them? What do they believe? <clears throat> well, here's a little chart. Hopefully you can see that. 
Can you see that? That's why you need to sit up closer if you can't. So let's take a look at this real quickly. Um, the, the PCUSA, which is the more liberal of the, uh, of the four that we're going to take a look at, uh, is on the far left in the columns there. So the issue that I pulled out is the issue of the inerrancy or the, the authority of the Bible. The PCUSA says, no, the Bible is not inerrant and there, it, has, it does not have authority. Now, let me just quickly add that my note at the bottom when I put yes or no up there, that designation only indicates what the denomination as a whole accepts, not what a particular congregation or minister may believe within that denomination. So there may be exceptions to this, is what I'm saying. But you will see, obviously, the influence of liberal theology uh, on the PCA as a whole as we, as we take a look at this. But with regard to the, the PCA and the OPC and the EPC, all of them do hold to the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. With regard to the divinity of Christ, the PCUSA does not hold to the divinity of Christ. The other three do. With regard to substitutionary atonement, the PCUSA does not require that. The other three do. With regard to the ordination of women, the PCUSA will ordain women. The PCA and the OPC will not, the EPC, in kind of a strange one-off here, uh, leaves that up to the, uh, the local church decision. What about homosexual practices? Is it wrong? The PCUSA says no. <clears throat> the PCA, OPC, and the EPC say yes. The ordination of homosexuals, um, yes. PC USA will ordain them. The other three will not. Is abortion morally wrong? PC USA says no. Um, and the other three will say yes. With regard to divorce for adultery or uh, desertion only, which, by the way, Pastor Bark, I believe, is going to be talking about today. Adultery um, or desertion are those the only two grounds for uh, biblical divorce? And um, the PCUSA will say, no, we, we now accept this no-fault divorce. And the PCUSA and the other three say, um, yes, those are the only two grounds for divorce. There's a number of churches. It gives you the number of churches that are involved in each of these denominations. So you can see the PCUSA is the largest in the United States. Um, and the second largest being the PCA. So that gives you an idea of, of where the Presbyterian church is at today, and um, we need to move ahead. What about Lutheran theology? Luther's background, <clears throat> we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but um, he was a lawyer, then he became an ordained priest. He had an earned doctorate as an ordained priest. He became very troubled, as many of you know, about his own personal sin, about obtaining forgiveness. And so his theology grew out of this, this uh, particular personal circumstance. He, was, he would wrestle deeply with his own personal sin and salvation and was very burdened about that. But he's also very disturbed by the abuses that he saw, especially in the selling of indulgences, which would be an interesting study to go into that, his opposition to a guy named Tetzel. Um, his theology changed and developed then over a period of time. Being a Roman, good, kind of a good Roman Catholic preach, 
priest, as he's burdened with his sin, he's not converted, he begins uh, to um, see some things in Scripture, and eventually he gets converted, and so his theology uh, over time changes and develops because he's moving from a Roman Catholic theology to a much more biblical theology, and I'm using biblical theology not in the sense of the particular discipline that we call biblical theology, but just to mean that the, his theology is more biblical than it used to be. Um, <clears throat> some parts of his theology did not transition as far as we would like, but we can appreciate how the Lord used him to bring the professing Christian church to a much more biblical view of justification and salvation. Uh, as you probably well know, his, um, his understanding of justification by faith was a key contribution to the church as a whole. Luther did not set out to separate from the Roman Catholic Church. Instead, he wanted just to reform the abuses that he saw within it. When he posted the 95 Theses, he was still a good Roman Catholic priest who prayed to Mary and the saints and was subject to the Pope. So he underwent development. What do, I should say, I should say Lutherans believe there? Um, Lutheran denominations, there are many different Lutheran denominations today. What do they believe? Most hold to what is called the Augsburg Confession uh, as to what it means to be Lutheran, which, which was written by um, Luther and Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon. Um, they hold to the Book of Concord, which is the historic doctrinal standard, and it lists ten creeds as authoritative for Lutheranism. And those are the ten. I'm not going to go through them all, but just know that there's a larger and shorter catechism by Martin Luther in there, the Augsburg Confession, in some other um, sound um, creeds. Um, with regard to uh, Lutheran denominations, there's a general assembly, which is a body of delegated ministers, and then I think this, I think this is a leftover note. Forget that one. Okay, let's move on here to Lutheran denominations. There are two main denominations in America, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, the, when you hear somebody talk about the Lutheran Church and you hear them talk about the Missouri Synod, you can usually, if you run into somebody and you say, they tell you they're a Lutheran, and you can, if you find out that they're in a Lutheran Church that's the Missouri Synod, you'll know that that's a little more conservative and it is possible that person is likely converted. Whereas the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is uh, it's maybe not so much that way. So the, the Missouri Synod branch or uh, denomination is that which is conservative theologically and it believes the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And they will limit their pastors who can preach in their churches um, and celebrate communion in churches. Like one pastor go to another church, can they, in their situation, they would have a visiting pastor sometimes celebrate communion with the church. They can only do that within confessional Lutheran church bodies. They, they won't let other people do that. Whereas with regard to the, um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, it's more liberal theologically, and it does not believe that the Bible is always accurate or trustworthy, and they do acknowledge full communion with a, a large number of churches, for example, the PCUSA, we just got through looking at them and seeing how liberal they were and how liberal theology has influenced their uh, denomination. 
um, <clears throat> in that chart that I had up there, but they're in full communion with those churches. And with the Reformed Church uh, in America, which is liberal on same-sex marriage, on ordination of LGBT clergy, and the ordination of women, and etc. Uh, they're in full communion with the United Church of Christ. It's very liberal in theology. With the Episcopal Church, the Moravian Church, the United Methodist Church, they're in full communion with all these very, very liberal churches. And so uh, this is a very liberal, theologically, uh, denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. What do Lutherans believe? Well, Luther and the conservative Lutheran, Luther and conservative Lutherans, Lutherans, I think, can be called evangelical, uh, broadly speaking. Luther made notable contributions to the Christian faith, which we uh, are aware of, especially justification by faith and exposing indulgences and many other things that came out of the Reformation. But there are some areas where the dirt of the Roman Catholic theology still clung to him, I believe. For example, baptism. Uh, in his Creeds of the Church, uh, the Augsburg Confession states that baptism is necessary and that grace is offered through it. Children, too, should be baptized, for in baptism they are committed to God and become acceptable to him. That's in chapter 9 of the Augsburg Confession. And Luther's Catechism states that baptism affects forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and grants eternal salvation to all who believe as the word uh, and promise of God declares in chapter 4, the second question. Now, there is a third question that follows right after this particular question, which softens this statement because it tries to say that it is important uh, for the person who um, who is receiving these uh, baptism to be uh, to, to have faith, and that faith needs to be united with the word, and the word needs to be united with the water, and it's not just the water all by itself, but it's the water united with the word of God that causes its uh, effectiveness. Nevertheless, uh, when that's applied to infants, you can see that there are still problems, and. With regard to the Lord's Supper, um, it is called in their confessions the Holy Supper, the Mass, the Sacrament of the Altar, um, actually even called, called the Mass, for example, but they don't use it in the same way that the Roman Catholics would use the term Mass. Um, but it does have those designations in their doctrinal statements. And Luther came to reject transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic view that the, the elements, the bread and the wine, are um, uh, become, actually become, are transferred into, uh, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. Instead, Luther held to, and Lutherans hold to, what is called consubstantiation, which is the idea that at the same time, the elements of, of both the bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Christ are really present. So they do believe that the real body and blood of Christ is present in the elements, but they don't believe that the bread and the wine have been transformed into them. They believe they are just both together there in the elements. That's called consubstantiation, and that's what the Lutherans hold to. They also hold to a view of confession, which you may not have heard about this before, but um, 
they believe that there is a confessee and a confessor, which is the pastor. The confessor absolves the, confess the confessee of his or her sins. When the confessee, that is the person confessing, says that he or she believes what the confessor pronounces, uh, then, they're, they're, um, they, then they are absolved of their sins. Let me just read to you real quickly an example of this, and we're not going to get time to get into Anglican theology, but that's just going to be the way it is. So um, here is what their confession says as an example. Here's a given example of how this is to be done. Uh, Please give me, the pastor said, please give me a brief form of confession. The answer, you should, you should say to the confessor, Dear pastor, please hear my confession and declare that my sins are forgiven for God's sake. The pastor says, um, proceed. Then the confessor says, uh, or confessee says, I, a poor sinner, confess before God that I am guilty of all sins. In particular, I confess in your presence that as a, man, as a manservant or maidservant, I am unfaithful to my master, for here and there I have, done what I, I have not done what I was told. I have made my master angry, caused him to curse, neglected to do my duty, and caused him to suffer loss. I have also been immodest in word and deed. I have quarreled with my equals. I have grumbled and sworn at my mistress. For all this, I am sorry and pray for grace. I mean to, I mean to do better." So it's given an example of how somebody might confess their sins. And so then, at the end of all of their confession, it says, then the, the confessor shall say, God be, God be merciful to you and strengthen your faith. Amen. And then he will say, do you believe that the forgiveness I declare to you is the forgiveness of God? And the one who's confessing will say, yes, I do. Then the, the pastor will say, be it done for you as you have believed. According to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Interesting, that's still in their uh, official documents held by even the, um, the conservative branch of the Lutheran Church. So some of the old, some of the old Roman Catholic uh, Doctrine still kind of clung to Luther and to Melanchthon and, and others. And um, while they have gotten away from priests and the priesthood and the Pope and all of that, still they have kind of reassigned some of the, what took place under the uh, confession of the priest to pastors. And now we're on to Anglican theology, but we don't have time for that, so I'm going to have to just defer that to another time. But uh, I do believe that with regard to these two particular denominations, um, there are uh, a number of solid believers. Some of them have not applied, I think, some of these more extreme things in, in, uh, that we have observed here. Uh, in a way that um, excludes them from the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so, question, Michael? Yeah, when did Lutheranism become a denomination? What was the year? Did it break out? And what 
Um, I don't know for sure. Does anybody know that? Dwayne, you know? Yeah, when they when they kind of officially became a denomination, I couldn't tell you the year. It's the centuries, but I, I don't know for sure um, when that actually took place. You know, the Diet of Worms was fifteen seventeen, or when he posted his, his um, ninety-five theses, it was fifteen seventeen. But good question. I don't I don't know the answer to that. I I probably read it, and it just is not coming back to me. Okay, so um, what we can be appreciative of is how the gospel, out of the Reformation, you know that these are two churches that came from the Reformation, and, um, and so the Lord used these two movements in very significant ways. Even though we wouldn't embrace all of the theology that came out of that, still what we have to remember is where they started. You know, they were, they were, if you understood Roman Catholic theology and, and Roman Catholic practice of the day, they are miles ahead and closer to us than what we, at least in the conservative branches, than what we would be to the Roman Catholicism. And so um, we just have to appreciate the fact that God in history didn't, you know, make them initially uh, as well taught and sound in their doctrine as we might like for them to have been. At the same time, look how far they came, how far they came from where they were. And so uh, we can appreciate that and, um, and, and then appreciate our, our brothers and sisters who are in the, PC, the Presbyterian churches and the Lutheran churches today. Not everybody who is a Presbyterian is a... I was a Presbyterian and I was baptized. <laughs> I, that wasn't a, it was not one of the good churches. It was one of the bad churches. Um, but, um, you know, not everybody who is a Presbyterian or a Lutheran is converted, and you just have to judge them on a case-by-case basis. So, all right, let's uh, pray and be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you that you uh, have brought us to this time, this place. Thank you that your word is sound and true. Thank you for the message that we are about to hear from Pastor Mark. Do bless him and may the word of God go forth with power this day. And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.